If you're committed to transitioning to a new role outside of the classroom, let me give you some advice. Don't try to navigate this journey all on your own. The Teacher Career Coach course will walk you step-by-step through the entire process. When you sign up, you'll get help picking your career path, have access to a library of transition resumes for teachers written by a professional, and even gain access to a list of hundreds of companies that hire teachers. Most importantly, you'll join our exclusive private community to collaborate with others and network. I've dedicated my time putting together templates and resources to create the most thorough program to help save you time. Learn more about the Teacher Career Coach course at teachercareercoach.com forward slash course. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Williams. A few months back, I asked if anyone in the community would recommend a great counselor who would be willing to come on the podcast. I was introduced quickly to this episode's guest, Blake Blankenbeckler, a licensed professional counselor based in Austin, Texas. Blake specializes in helping people with anxiety, trauma, disordered eating, and hurt relationships feel better and find relief. In this episode, we dig deep into the emotional injuries that are common in those who are in helping professions, like teachers, and why it can feel so difficult to set boundaries. Hi, Blake. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Daphne. Thanks for having me. I have been dying to get a therapist on this show for a very long time because I it's been a reoccurring theme for so many past episodes <laughs> that basically all the former teachers said, well, my therapist said this and my therapist, my therapist said that. <laughs> and it's something that I think a lot of teachers need to hear and learn is about just therapy in general. So thank you so much for being here. And I'd love if you just started off with kind of like a brief overview of who you are and just let them know your expertise. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm so grateful to be here and I'm so grateful for everyone listening. All the teachers. Um, I'm Blake Blankenbeckler. I have a, I'm a licensed professional counselor in Austin, Texas. I have a virtual practice um, thanks to COVID. And yeah, I work with um, predominantly women and we work on anxiety, depression, um, trauma, eating disorders, all things that are really common to see in the field of teachers and in the field of helpers. 
Um, so I'm really excited to have this conversation. You initially reached out to me, I believe, because I was putting kind of a call to action out there and just yeah. saying, I really wanted to talk to a therapist about this. And you said, you know, you had seen patterns within your clients in general and teachers in general, um, such as teacher guilt and just mm-hmm. having a hard time pulling back. Why is it that you think that so many teachers end up finding themselves kind of in this funk and needing therapy? You know, I think about the helping profession. I think about therapists and teachers are in a similar space. Um, And I often say we don't come to the field by accident. Like we are hardwired early on to want to be helpful. Um, And I think about, I'm going to go into the nerdy explanation of um, this emotional injury that I see a lot with with teachers specifically, and it's this emotional injury called um, the premature injury. So basically when we are really young in that um, kind of baby toddler stage, like two-ish, there's this experience of we're becoming little kids and we're still we still need to be little babies. So if you think about a kid um, playing with a ball, and the mom or the dad is standing next to them and they're playing with the ball, being this really big, like big kid and walking away and then they fall and they need to turn back into a little baby because it's scary and they just fell. And often what happens is they'll look back at their parent and the parent either won't be paying attention or they'll get these responses like, stop being so sensitive, just pick yourself back up. And so what this does is this preconditions people to kill off they're really young baby parts, meaning the parts of them that are messy, the parts of them that need help, and they become hyper attuned to what everybody else needs. So when I see teachers, um, they are some of the most compassionate and attuned and empathetic people that can tell you so much just by looking at their students. But then when I start to ask, what do you feel about this? Like, what's this like for you? It is a blank I get a lot of blank faces of like, what, what, do you, what do you mean? And it's not so there. It's not that they're not answering the question. It's truly that they do not know because they've never gotten to. They have a whole um, upbringing of being disconnected from their own sense of knowing and needing and being messy. That's a great point. I have an episode that I talk about what we call, you know, teacher guilt. And in that episode, I talk about what I struggled with as a teacher. And for me, it was scaling back whatsoever on how much I was working just to, you know, fill my own bucket, as they say, where it came to the point that I was really impacting my own relationships and my own personal relationships, but it did not feel like an option. It felt yeah, impossible for me to not put together a, a better lesson for the weekend or to do more to help this one student that was really, you know, stressing me out that I wanted to make sure that they reached a certain level or got the extra additional support that they needed. And it was just constantly on my mind to the point that, you know, people would say like, why can't you go to this birthday party or why can't you go to this thing? And I just kept saying like, well, I can't. It truly feels like you can't. In your body, it feels as though you cannot. And the more you put yourself in that position, 
the easier it is to get disassociated from it and to kind of like get further and further and further into it. So I think the longer you're actually in the position and feeling empathetic for so many people, it's harder for you to remember like some days and sometimes your interests are going to conflict with other people's interests and you may have to choose yourself someday. You will disappoint people. And that sucks. <sighs> Disappointing people is yeah. my biggest fear. Uh-huh. Like absolutely my biggest fear is just hurting people's feelings or putting people down or just not supporting them when I know that I'm capable of supporting them. And just notice it's so easy to not disappoint other people and it is so easy to disappoint ourselves. <laughs> You know, like all of these, all of these times where it's like, I can't disappoint them. I can't disappoint them. And the reality is you're going to disappoint someone. And if you are only ever choosing to disappoint yourself, that's going to cost. And that's going to lead to burnout. Your body's going to start talking to you. Like I even remember at a certain point, I'm not a teacher, but, um, you know, I was in a really, in a helping role and I got ulcers and in my stomach and I can't tell you the amount of people who come in to see me and they have like IBS or ulcers. It's like, huh, isn't that not ironic? <laughs> like your body's trying to tell you something that, that, that this isn't sustainable, that we can't care well for all of these, all of these humans and their parents and the system. Like, blah, blah, blah. it's too much. I remember that one of the things that I constantly was having was a lot of swelling like right in your jaw here in my jaw right underneath um like clenched jaw and a lot of strange headaches and rashes and strange swelling from time to time and Uh every doctor I just kept going in it was my very last year of teaching and that wasn't necessarily a struggle that I was having with um the students, the student workload was still a lot and felt not, I did not feel like I was working a sustainable position, but that was actually just a very toxic work environment for me, kind of with adult bullying and a lot of really toxic behaviors. And that was when I ended up just having to remove myself from the situation altogether. But every doctor said, girl, it's, you know, it's stress. Stress. Adult bullies in the workplace are the worst. Do you have a lot of teachers that you talk to that come from environments that are maybe less than professional and that might be what's impacting them mentally as well? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up because yes, absolutely. A lot of it is less about kind of what you're saying. I mean, I've had teachers who are in roles where they do have kids that have high, high needs and are coming from different backgrounds where they don't, they're not getting as much care and support at home. So school is their primary support but what makes it even harder is it's the um it's the administration and it's these obnoxious meetings on meetings and paperwork and having teachers or having supervisors show up in your classroom at moment like it's not you know I I often talk about if we were taking a test, or if you, imagine yourself taking a test, if your teacher is standing over there watching you, like watching, like right next to you and just staring down your shoulder, you're not going to do well on that test because you are going to be, your nervous system is going to be in this fight or flight response of being really scared. I'm, wa- I'm being watched and it's not safe. And granted, I know that there are precautions and this is part of things like supervisors have to be there. 
Um, now I'm not making sense. How do I, how do I say, uh, we'll rephrase that. <laughs> how do I, is it, I'm trying to think what my question is. Um, it's often like a requirement that supervisors come in and like watch your classroom, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There's stole evaluations was what I had to go through is multiple times a year. And then there's depending on the school district, some school districts come in more often and it depends on your relationship with the principal. I had a principal who came in bi-monthly or so, and it never felt that stressful. And then that last school district where I felt like it was a very toxic work environment, I completely tensed up. And I think that a lot of that has to do also and, and the way that you feel about your position in general, whether it's teaching or not, is if you don't feel like you have autonomy, if you don't feel truly valued and respected, you start to resent the position or just kind of fall out of love with it. And I think, you know, autonomy and a professional environment go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And being micromanaged and toxic work environments kind of go hand in hand as well. Yes. Yes. So being watched when it is an unsafe supervisor, unsafe principals, um, unsafe administrators, you don't tend to do well. And yeah, it creates resentment. You don't want to show up. You want to hide. And often when I'm working with a teacher, these are bigger themes in their life. And it's not just showing up in the classroom. It's also I don't know how to advocate for myself with my friends. I don't know how to advocate for myself with my family. And so it's, again, it's this whole thing where we are often drawn to these professions and these workspaces that sometimes feel a lot like home, where we are expected to be the givers. We'll get into the human giver syndrome soon, where we're expected to be the givers, to be really sweet and obedient and compliant. And when we start taking up space, and asking for things and having boundaries, there's punishment in different ways. That's such a great point. And just to kind of add to that, I think that that is where some of the, and I don't want to generalize and say every administrator <laughs> is like a piece of doo-doo because that no, is not, not accurate. True. But I do think that some administrators and people higher up are burnt out in their positions as well. And they've gotten to this place of kind of complacency where they know that they don't have to actually listen to the concerns of those below them because they actually kind of, I think, bank on the fact that uh, we've made it very hard for these people to actually leave this position, whether they financially feel stuck, whether they emotionally feel stuck, but it's very difficult for these people to leave. So they kind of have to take the status quo of it is what it is because, you know, they say there's a high turnover teacher rate, but they don't really expect people to leave where other companies after I've left the classroom where I felt valued and respected those companies know even if I'm super happy another really good company might poach me and pay me more so they want to constantly keep me happy and let me know that I'm valued and let me create something I want to create and you know, explore the different parts of my career that I'm excited about exploring because they yeah. want me to stay there for the long term where I do think that there's some truth to the system itself is a little broken and they expect yes. people to take the status quo. Yes, yes. And it is. Yeah, I, I am glad that you made that point because 
I know that there are incredible administrators and principals, and it is really the system that, you know, it's like we can just go more and more up and up and up these levels of the system is inherently flawed and broken. I've had one of the most inspirational principals and administrators out there come in and actually speak on the podcast. I think it was episode three and it's Principal Ra. And he, you know, advocates for his teachers to get higher salaries. He advocates even for self-care as a professional development practice where he pays them to come and do yoga. Heck yeah. Instead of just saying, make time for professional development, he's like, let me put my money where my mouth is. Like you come and make time for self-care because there's a financial limitation of sometimes people just have to do things that are bringing them income. Mm-hmm. They, If you're not making enough money, you might not have enough free time to constantly be doing all these other pursuits. So he really is fighting to change the way that the system is treating teachers, especially in his school. And I know that there are so many principals out there that are making changes and are doing everything that they can. And I don't want anybody listening to I don't like generalizing moving to human giver syndrome what Mm -hmm. is human giver what is human giver syndrome I'm so excited to talk about this so this is not my concept I am not I am smart I am not that smart so this is a concept that was developed and put language around by um, this woman Kate Mann she is a philosopher Uh, she studies at Cornell University And she is the author of a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And where I first heard about this concept is in the book Burnout by Emily, which I would recommend every single teacher and administrator read, uh, which is, it's called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. So it's this experience, and I'm going to have you guess who the human givers are. So the human givers, it's this experience of you are obligated to give not ask. You are expected to feel indebted and and grateful rather than entitled. Um, you are expected to abdicate any resource or power that you might acquire. And you must at all times be pretty and happy and calm and generous and attentive to the needs of others and sweet and obedient. And there is So there's human givers that have to give. Their moral obligation is to give. And then there's human beings where their moral obligation is to be and to be inspired. And I just want you to take like a wild guess. Um, If there were genders, which I know there are, we're just going to work with two for this one. But which one do you think, uh, which gender do you think more represents the human givers? That would be, I would say, female-led. Yeah, yeah precisely and I don't I tried actually looking up this statistic do you know uh, what the percentage of teachers that are female are are Uh, I roughly could estimate probably 80 to 90 percent easily and that's just an estimate Mm -hmm. that's what I I got like 70 75 but way way more and so the human giver syndrome is really present in I mean, it's present in Western culture and Western society, and we're going to see it so much in with teachers, where they are expected to give endlessly, right? Like even you were, as you were talking about, I have to do more lesson plans. I have to do more. I can't do these things. You were, in a way, if we look at it, you were 
enveloped in the human giver syndrome where you were saying, I can't, I can't take. It's actually really bad for me to take. So when I hear teachers saying it's so hard to practice self-care and it's like these self-care activities are like going outside, taking a walk. Those things inherently aren't hard, but because the very fact of doing them means that you're kind of disobeying the system that says you are only here to give and to give to others selflessly, that makes it really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing, even just when you were talking about how it's usually um, those who identify as females, I think that teaching in general has become such a submissive profession. And if you ever see um, like old, now, I mean, it's on a PDF, but back then it was like a scroll or something like the rules of what it meant to be a teacher. You couldn't be married. You had to have your skirt down to a certain length. But now even um, there are people who are in the profession that they're not allowed to have pictures of them and their significant others up in the classroom if it's not a heterosexual um, relationship. There are teachers who struggle with just being put into a category of this is who you are as a human and you have to kind of conform to what we say, but at all times. Yeah, you um, don't get to have a self. And that is, I think, something that a lot of people really struggle with. Myself, personally, I remember completely deleting all of my social media because I knew that last school year that there were parents who were saying not so nice things about me on Facebook looking for me. And I knew that if they saw a picture of me with a glass of wine, that was something I could actually get in trouble with from my own administrator. Because I had an interaction where people were having glasses of wine at dinner and I had someone say to me, I don't think it's you know, appropriate to do this out in public anywhere near where the school is located. Like anywhere in the city that you live, you should not have a glass of wine at dinner. And I was like, oh no, I am an adult woman. I don't know if yeah. this is going to be the right fit for me. But it, it's that experience of you need to be a giver 24 hours a day. And even these, even Emily Nagoski did research and talked about how how women are feeling guilty for sleeping. Oh, I slept in. I slept too much. It's like, oh my gosh, the standards here that God forbid you enjoy a glass of wine. It's I, crazy. Yeah, I think that it's definitely turned into a career that some some places and some school districts and some environments have turned into something that is not what it should be. And the overall objective is to help students but not help students at an impossible level that is not manageable for us as human beings it's just find that love of education and pass that along to other generations and that's what gets muddied so the further and further people get i wanted to go back into therapy and just the topic of therapy a little bit more and why you personally think that therapy is so important for everyone, not just those, especially those at rock bottom. Right. I'm on a big kick to help folks realize you do, yeah, you don't, you get to go to therapy for being human, not for just being in crisis. And I think it's wildly important. I just did a 
question on my Instagram and I had people write down what was the best part of therapy for you. And most of them didn't talk about how they were able to work through their trauma. They talked about how much they changed in the presence of a safe relationship where they were listened to, they were heard, they were attuned. When they said things, they weren't going to be judged. They were given the like a generous assumption. And they were also challenged on some of their th the things that they said. And they said that was the thing that changed me the most. And that's even what empirical evidence shows is that um, for therapy, it doesn't matter so much what I know we'll talk about modalities and theories soon. It doesn't so much matter what theory you use that um, dictates your positive outcomes in therapy. It's the quality of the relationship that you have. So I think about how it is, if you look at a person's life, it is relationships that have hurt them and have gotten them to where they are. And it will, it's a terrible and beautiful truth that it will also be relationships that heal them. And so therapy often is the first place where you get to have a really, not the first place, but a really important place where you get to have a relationship that is healing and that it is attuned and really sacred, honestly. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. people kind of you know go on blind dates with therapists to figure out if they're the right <laughs> therapists for them because me my personal fear would I would go in there and I would say something and they would say oh you shouldn't have a glass of wine at dinner <laughs> that's not my biggest fear that makes me sound like I have a drinking problem I just my biggest concern would be that something would happen in you know, politically or morally, we would not sink. And then I would never respect that person and have to pull back. So how do you feel like people go about finding therapists that actually work for them and with them for a great partnership? Mm -hmm. You'll have to go on some blind dates, make some calls, ask around. Word of mouth is always going to be the best bet. Um, but also, I think even remembering you're paying someone so you get to ask questions. Hey, can you tell me more about your political beliefs? Um, that's something that's really important to me and I want a therapist who's aligned with that. Can you tell me more? Especially with the past year. Yeah. I mean, I would have gone to a therapist every week and if they would have said at some point, oh, but you know, or emails or something I might have said like okay refund check please like I gotta go 
yeah. Not that they would. A very professional person wouldn't. But it would be something that before I went in, if it if that was something that was really emotionally what I wanted to talk about, it would be a struggle for me. Absolutely. And I have the same thing. You know, I live in the – I was in L.A., so this wasn't as much of a question, but I live in the South now, and faith is really important. And so people even ask me, like, hey, do you practice from a faith perspective? And I'm really honest with them. And I say, if you're needing someone who prays with you and reads from the Bible, probably not going to be your best fit. Um, but if you want someone to hold this part of your life with you, I'm absolutely game for it. And it's okay if we don't agree. And and something, too, that I find that's really important about therapy, and I really invite my clients to say, because it's important you know, as teachers, we're learn. Or I'm just thinking about teachers and speaking up for yourself and um, being assertive. Is if you feel judged, I really invite you to say, Blake, that face that you just made felt really judgmental. Were you just judging me there? And I'll be really honest. Sometimes I, you know, so and and I'll and I'll talk about this is what I was experiencing. Um, so just remembering that you get to ask questions. This is your space, and you get to take up space. And just the very notion of that is part of the reason why it's important to go to therapy to learn that you can take up space. And there's also a lot of different types of therapy. Yes. So how do you choose which one is the right one for you? (laughs) I know that that's that's a very open-ended question that probably you could go on for an hour about. I'll be fast. I, or or I'll I'll try and condense it. I... I think websites are very important. Um, and so I think of a person, a therapist website, like their living room. Do you want to be there? Do you like the vibe of it? Do you like what they're saying? Do you feel like you can sit on the couch and stay a while or like you need to sit up really straight and make sure that you wear something nice? Do you feel um, do you feel curious? Do you feel excited about being there? Do you like what you're seeing? Are you are you noticing even your body tenses up while you're on this therapist website hearing about what they're saying and you're like, oh my gosh, do I have trauma? Do I have depression? What's And just notice those cues in your body. Um, I think that that's a great first way. And then most therapists offer free 15 to 20 minute consultations where you get to talk with them. And part of that initial conversation is just realizing like do I like the vibe of this person do I feel like I I connect with them and if you don't you don't owe anything to the therapist you get to keep looking and so that's an important thing to remember is I hear a lot of times people saying well I don't want to hurt their I don't want to hurt your feelings I don't want to hurt their feelings how do I tell them no and that's some of the work of of therapy um, is to learn yeah to speak up for yourself and your initial question was how to know what kind of therapy is correct, is best for a person. I can give a, I'll give a quick rundown of the types of therapy. So I'll first start, I practice from a depth psychotherapy lens. So this is going to be long-term attachment, working with the unconscious. You've heard, you've already heard me talk about early childhood experiences. I think that's really important. And I also know not everyone has the time to devote one hour every week, has the time and the resources to devote one hour every single week for years and years. Like I, I sometimes see clients for two to three years. 
And so you have, you got, you got options. So a lot of, if you're needing CBT therapists are great. They're going to help you learn how to change your thoughts and that that gets to change your behavior. Um, there is a type of therapy called EMDR that's really great. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so that stands, that's going to be a type of trauma therapy where you go back through specific memories and reprocess them. Um, a lot of, there's something called DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. We got a lot of acronyms in the world of, in the world of therapy. And that's going to be all about radical acceptance and how to really accept where you are and learn how to be with those, those experiences and your reality and then change them. I noticed that you said that you worked with your clients for years at a time. And that means that you know the ins and outs and everything about them, things that trigger them. You'll probably remember um, connections Absolutely. that they wouldn't have noticed. Do you think that some of the um, more scaled therapy programs, and we don't have to mention any names, where they might have therapists who are text messaging and sending to 2,000 or 3,000 types of clients. Do you think that they're able to offer that same sort of support? It's better than nothing. And you part of the reason that therapy, especially, so I do it virtually, so I can see a person's face, I can see their body language. We get to work in the here and now, meaning we get to talk about what's happening in the present moment. With, with text message, I mean, even think about when you're texting your friends, you get The connotation gets off. Yeah. You get missed. Well, you can you get, get in fights. You can get fights. <laughs> Is that sarcastic? I remember someone said, I told my friends that they got, after I said, hey, let's think about doing this, they wrote, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really offended. And I told them I was really offended. And this person was like, oh my gosh, I meant, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you don't get those on text messages. <laughs> My mother has a very strange way of communicating where I get to read her text messages in three or four different times. Like, is she saying, oh, well, I'm so happy that you would decide to do that? Or is she saying like, oh, I'm so happy that you would decide to do that? Like, why don't you just say I'm happy for you? I don't like the decide to do that part. It makes it very vague. But it feels like she does that more so than most people where all the time I'm like, there's four or five different ways. Am I furious right now? <laughs> yes, yes. We need to be able to see each other's face. And that's so much of the work I do is, and the work a lot of therapists do is on attachment and on nonverbal communication. And, you know, a lot of times, like when we're doing trauma therapy, like EMDR, a person's actually using my nervous system to regulate. And you don't get that often in text messages. And I just think we will talk about, we will find you options. There are options to do therapy in person or virtually where your face gets to be seen and you get to see your therapist's face there are options and we can find affordable ways, so. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. 
All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What are some of your best pieces of advice on how teachers can find affordable therapy options? Okay. I got I got some options for you. First things first, call university centers and see if they have counseling centers and if they're open to the public. For example, I went to a grad school in Nashville and they had a marriage and family center that was open to everybody in the public and because the it was staffed, the therapists were grad students, $10 sessions, $15 sessions, $25 sessions. When I also look for interns and associates, so you'll want to Google reduced rate counseling in my area. Go to group private practices and on their website, see if they have low fee therapists available. A lot of group private practices hire associates and hire interns who are having to do their hours. And so they're gonna offer their rates at highly reduced rates. So the first three to six months I was doing my practicum, I charged $35 an hour per session. And that's happening in a lot of places. Other options you can do is group therapy. It's an underutilized resource. It feels a little scary, but these usually run from $30 to $75. And granted, it's not individual, but it is some of the greatest care that you can get. And you will get feedback from your peers. You will get feedback from your therapist. And it is wildly powerful and so if you're brave and if i it takes some bravery to get in there but try that out and then there's also a site called openpathcollective.org and they have practitioners all over the country that charge 30 to 60 dollars for their sessions and all of these and again all of these options you don't have to use insurance which is pretty great so because with insurance you sometimes have to get you have to get, um, a therapist has to give you a diagnosis and that goes on your person that goes on your health records and so this is a way that is usually pretty affordable and you can yeah you can keep your health records private and the last thing last thing I'll I'll say is also ask therapists if they have any sliding scale spots so I have two or three spots that I offer and I ask um, clients what they can pay and we make it work so ask, ask away. And for anybody right now, let's just get to it. If they wanted to work with you currently, they need to be living inside Texas, correct? And anywhere inside the state of Texas, correct. And we'll follow up with how to contact you at the very end of the show, but just wanted to clarify for anybody who's listening who might be excited about that possibility. Yay. The very last thing I wanted to touch on that I know that you're an expert in is... 
just self-care in general. And I know that you have a lot of really great advice for teachers when it comes to how to implement self-care practices into their routine. Yes, I love self-care so much. And one thing I think often about self-care is that it gets to be small, or it actually not gets to be, it needs to be small, it needs to be digestible, and it does not have to be wild like one one thing a day go really keep it as simple as possible and one of the things that comes from that book that I really recommend folks reading burnout is this idea to complete the stress cycle every single day as teachers you are I think most teachers are really empathic and attuned and so they're collecting all of this energy from, you know, you even naming, I have this kid that really needs some extra attention. That weighs on you and that weighs on your body day after day to notice, okay, this kid's having a good day. This one's been a little quiet. Da-da. You're always on. And so it's really important every day to try to do something to complete the stress cycle. This could be crying. <laughs> Truly, truly. It could be going on a walk. It could be doing anything that gets you out of breath. That's like your bare minimum is if you need to put on, I'm a big fan of Maggie Rogers and Lizzo. And so if you need to put on a song and dance to get out of breath, that is a great way to do it. Um, A 20 second hug with someone that you can hug and is in your pod and is in your your space. Um, Just a 20 second really attuned hug is a great way to release oxytocin. Another, I said it earlier, but a lot of times there's all of this talk on like mindfulness and meditation and sometimes we're too up and we're too anxious to, so the idea of getting quiet and silent and still is like the last thing our body wants us to do. So something that would be really (laughs) great is to again put on one of those songs like Lizzo or Back Back in My Body by Maggie Rogers is probably one of my favorite ones to do this with and shake your body. So this is if you think about trauma responses, shaking is a natural trauma response. So if you're out if you see a any type of wild animal out in the out in the bush, out and doing their thing and they get injured or say a lion puts its t- like eats tries eating it but then goes to get the other cubs this animal will once it realizes it's safe it will come back online and it will start shaking as a way to release trauma in the body and so this is something that we get to do today is shake our bodies so shake your body to your song imagine even imagine like all of that nasty ink I do this after I get off calls that make me feel really bad or icky so if you had like a like a nasty parent exchange or what have you that just leaves your insides feeling gross this is a great thing to do of just like shaking and flailing your body all over and just imagining that stuff getting out um yeah, you were. I saw you nodding as I was <laughs> when you were saying, saying some of the things. For me, every time my fiance loves meditation as a practice, and every time I think of meditation, I'm like, "Nah, I have too many tabs open. That makes me so stressed out to think yeah. about being silent for five yeah. minutes, and that is sad." But so, for some people, that is you know that's a skill that they have to build up to and it's one that they're very hesitant to but for me going for a jog okay I'm really stressed out and I need to clear my head like I have to do something physical to get breathless 
And then I'm able to calm down and think about what's my first thing I need to do. Yes. Yes. So small. Yeah. You know your body. You know what it needs. And even asking, starting a practice of asking, what does my body need today? What do I need? How do I give it to myself? And just turning in and asking the question. We get really caught up with, I think there's a lot of perfectionism in self-care, which makes me really sad of like, you need to make sure to drink all the water and wake up early and meditate and journal and work out and da 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 da. And it's like, I can't do any of that. So I'm not going to do anything. It's like, just choose one. Just choose one. I think what a lot of teachers really need as a form of self-care is number one, rest. And number two, just learning to have grace with themselves and letting things go that they cannot control. Mm-hmm. Walking away from doing all the things and just letting themselves enjoy moments of silence and enjoy rest and enjoying doing things not and and knowing that yes having grace with yourself is so important because with things like self-care and giving yourself kindness and compassion it actually a lot of people don't have a tolerance for it so it feels more familiar and comfortable to push through all boundaries to work yourself into the point of exhaustion And so initially when you first start a self-care practice or even start thinking about going to therapy and going to therapy, it's going to feel really bad to value yourself. And just because it feels bad doesn't mean it is bad, but knowing that there is some, it's going to take some time, just like you have to work out to become, you don't want to run a marathon the first day of training. You actually need to start training to, to be able to tolerate self-care and tolerate kindness and compassion for yourself. I know that on your website, I think you have a five-day self-care challenge. Can you tell me a little bit about what that includes? Yes, I'm really excited about that. So that is something that I created. Do not feel obligated to do it in five days. Um, Do it in any amount of days that you want to. Five just sounded nice. Um, So essentially what it is, is it is an invitation to explore your story around self-care, meaning a lot of what we talked about today with the emotional injuries that happen is exploring how your family viewed rest, how did they view play, um, what happened when, yeah, did you ever see your mom rest? Did you ever see her take a minute or did you see her push herself to the point of exhaustion and making connections that, oh, that might also be why it's hard for me to care for myself because it was never shown. I was never shown how to do that. And then it is just a really gentle exploration of how you can come into connection with your own story and with your own body and with your own emotions to kind of create some really gentle, caring ways to begin turning towards yourself and valuing yourself and actually not just giving yourself away, but learning how to be with yourself and have a self. So that can be found on my website. I really, everybody's the teacher, so they know how to spell well, Um, but it's blakeblankenbeckler.com. So that's, I know it'll be in the show notes, but it's, yeah, it'll be in the show notes. (laughs) It will absolutely be in this show notes, so you do not need to say it out loud. Um, I know so, it's a mouthful. Uh, well, thank you so much, Blake, for joining us here today. You have been such a delight, and I'm actually very excited to end this interview so I can go take 
that Yay. challenge. I am really excited. I think I have some um, ideas <laughs> of, <laughs> of what it might uh, open up for me, but it's. I'm really excited to see it from your perspective. Oh, good. Daphne, thank you. And thank you for how you are. I think even just you having this space and doing the work that you're doing is opening up possibilities for so many teachers to begin asking the question of like how do I I don't have to keep giving myself away but there are other options for me that can and can be um, ones where I'm valued and I am can practice living out my worth and my integrity so thank you for the work that you do I really appreciate you saying that you know I wanted to build a community just for people who felt the same way that I did and it seems so sad that it, there are so many, you know, unhappy teacher memes or miserable. It's just kind yeah. of turned into a um, career where a lot of people take pride in, oh, that's just part of it. And I wanted to kind of dive into that and explore like, well, why? You know, like if you're unhappy, there are a couple different options of what you can do, you know, change your environment, change your, um, the way that you perceive the stress or what's what other factors are contributing to the stress or you might not be happy in this career and let's figure that out too and bringing you here has been just such a huge piece to the puzzle of what i've been missing and i'm so so grateful for you to be here thank you for having me thank you to Blake for coming on and speaking to this audience. You can find her website and this episode's transcript in the show notes or at teachercareercoach.com forward slash therapy dash for dash teachers. This is such an important episode that I truly believe all educators should listen to. If you feel the same, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on Instagram or leave us a rating and review. Both of these will help other educators find this podcast and this support. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast.